from the University of Texas at Austin, KUT Radio. This is In Black America. I introduced myself and he uh, introduced himself and I said, you know, I have been admitted to get some education courses at Columbia. I said, but I really prefer the University of Georgia. I said, but you all won't let me come to the University of Georgia. So since we are looking at equality in Plessy versus Ferguson, I have been admitted at Columbia, and that's where I would like to go because it's a very good school, and I, I said it's equal to the University of Georgia, you know, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And I said, but, I said, do you know, sir, that at the University of, Te- of Georgia, classes are $25 an hour? And I said, I go up to Columbia, that's $75 an hour. Right. He said, well, we'll take care of the difference. The Honorable Dr. Harriet M. Murphy, retired municipal court judge, civil rights activist, former college professor and department head, and author of There All the Honor Lies, a memoir published by University of Texas Press. Murphy was the first African-American woman to be appointed to a judgeship in the state of Texas. She later became the presiding judge of Austin, Texas Municipal Court. Prior to joining the Municipal Court, for eight years she practiced law part-time, and for five years she was the head of the government department at Houston Tillerson College, now Houston Tillerson University. While in UT Austin School of Law, Murphy recalled negativity she received from the Austin African American community. They told her she would never graduate, and when she did, they told her she would never pass the bar. I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr., and welcome to another edition of In Black America. On this week's program, There All the Honor Lies, a memoir with the Honorable Dr. Harriet M. Murphy, Part 2, In Black America. I heard that a committee was being formed, because, and it tickled me because I said that they just feel that they they do, they're entitled to something better than just me being here. Mm-hmm. So his name was Jim Boyle, and I cannot locate him. I plan to call the state bar to find out where he is because he may be in a law office and his name is not anywhere. He organized this committee, and of course, me being the only black there, uh, they let me be on the committee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, they weren't too happy about it, but I told them, how can you have a a committee recruiting black students and not yeah. include me. Right. So that's what we did. We we decided to do just that. So we interviewed students over at University of Texas, and I remember one of them was uh, Carnegie Mims, mm-hmm. and I think there probably was one or two others. And uh, I'll never forget our trip to Prairie View because it was on a Wednesday night and it was even raining. But we had set up this with one of the government teachers at Prairie View, and I felt we had to go. The Honorable Harriet M. Murphy has long been an advocate for the advancement of people of color in this country. This started in her hometown of Atlanta, Georgia. Growing up in the segregated South in the 1930s and 40s, she saw firsthand how African Americans were treated. As a young girl, she confronted a bus driver when he tried to bully an African-American man into leaving the bus through the back door instead of the front. Over the course of her distinguished career, Murphy has served as an advisor to legislators, politicians, and university presidents on issues of diversity. 
2013, she received an honorary Doctor of Law degree from her alma mater, Spelman College, in Atlanta. Murphy is the founder of Austin, Texas, the Black Lawyers Association and the Travis County, Texas Women Lawyers Association. Also, Murphy had the pleasure of writing a daily analysis of the O.J. Simpson trial for the Austin American Statesman. On today's program, we conclude our program with the Honorable Harriet M. Murphy. I guess that kind of satisfied him because he couldn't imagine a black student making such a high score, score, you Mm -hmm. know. So Stan went on to UT and he became the uh, lawyer representing the mentally ill from the probate court. And then he became a municipal court uh, judge. I don't know whether he was full-time or Mm -hmm. whether he was uh, just part-time there at the municipal court. And I think he's now retired. But I want to look him up to tell him that I have him in the book. In the book. I understand. (laughs) I found it interesting that prior to you becoming the presiding judge, the municipal court was not the court of record. I could not understand up until that time it wasn't. Believe me, the Justice of the Peace Court now is not a court of record. It's still not a court of record. So Uh, what made you come up with that idea? Because I thought court's supposed to be (laughs) a court of record. And um, so I drafted the law to get through the legislature making our court a court of record. And they may have done it for all the municipal court uh, in the state, I don't remember. But I do know, and I'm not gonna call a name, I went to a legislator and I asked her, would she carry the bill through the legislature? Mm -hmm. And she just kind of ignored me with that. So um, I went to, the name comes to me every now and then, to him who was a member of the legislature, and I think he was a lawyer. If I could call his name, you would know him. I've heard of him. Anyway, he took the bill and passed it, got it passed through the legislature for me. I wanted to let you know I spent a number of hours last night trying to find one of your associate judges when you were the presiding judge in the municipal court in 1988 who were giving you a hard time. Oh, yes. And I think that if she ever get a chance to read the book, she would know how I felt. I could tell you, I could call her name, but I just don't think I I should do that now. Because last I heard, you know, she was practicing law after she didn't get uh, reappointed. Mm -hmm. But uh, But you said everybody got their comeuppance. (laughs) (laughs) Well, see, you know, they were dealing with a person who have never let people just walk over me, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and I got to get back with them. So we had a black secretary, and she had typed this note up. They were all t- getting together, the white judges, how how to get rid of me, mm-hmm, you know, as mm-hmm. a presiding judge. And uh, she had typed this note that said, you all go ahead on to lunch. You know, it it mentioned what it was for. You all go on to lunch, and I will meet you there later. So somehow, this secretary got a hold to the note because I think she gave her the note to give to someone. And so the secretary, being black, copied the note. And at that time, we didn't have computers. So I said, well, this is really something, you know. I said, these women are serious. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, I said, I need to be sure of just who wrote that note. So I called around and found a person. I think they worked at um, 
one of the computer companies, and I asked them, could I hire them to come to the court? I need to know what typewriter Mm -hmm. uh, this note was typed on. So I waited for 10 o'clock after everybody left, Mm -hmm. and the person came, and he uh, went through those typewriters and those judges' desks and found out that it came from this particular woman's Mm -hmm. typewriter. So I knew, you know, I just, I already knew she was my worst enemy, mm-hmm. and she was the leader. Yeah, yeah, she, had, she had said that you wouldn't be presiding judge if you were not black, you know. Judge Murphy, two more questions, and I just have to ask. You had an opportunity to interview W.E.B. Du Bois, one of the leading scholars of our time, let alone any generation, and you messed that up. Yeah, I messed it up because, you know, like I said, I was younger than I thought, and I didn't have sense enough to really go to the library and read up on him, uh, anything. So that's why my teacher, and this was one of Martin Luther King's teachers too, Mm -hmm. uh, said that um, this dumb, dumb, dumb 11th grade teacher had sent this bushy-head, red bushy-head girl, dumb girl, over the interview, the mm-hmm. great Dr. Du Bois. So anyway, I had a chance to meet him, and I talked to him, and we talked and everything, but he just decided that I was I didn't know what I was doing interviewing him, so he said, well, come on and follow me, and I followed him to his outer office, and he pulled out a book or two and told me to read the book about him and write up my report, which I did, and I got a, probably got an A with the report and everything. But then, like I said in the book, a little bit later on, a few maybe weeks or something, this teacher, you know, she she was very controversial, but she was a good teacher, mm-hmm. and she really helped us with the struggle that was going on. But she said that morning, class, I can tell you something. She said, you know, I'm uh, uh, Dr. Dubois' official hostess here in the city. You know, Mm -hmm. she took a lot of pride in that. And she said, guess what happened? And they said, Miss Shire, what happened? She said, that dumb 11th grade teacher, English teacher, sent this bushy-head girl, dumb girl, over to interview the great Dr. Dubois. And the kids just fell out. Boy, they, they, knew, all they knew it was me. Yeah. They just fell out laughing mm-hmm. all over the place. So I just laughed with them, you know, because I don't think she ever knew it exactly that it was me. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was a, a real interesting story. You know, I said, well, at least I have met him, and I feel like I'm, things are more interesting now with the struggle and all of that with being led by somebody like him who was one of the founders of the NAACP. (laughs) Speaking of NAACP, you and your girlfriend go to New York for graduate studies because you can't attend graduate school back home in Georgia. You get up there, come to find out that the reimbursement is after you finish the courses. So you all up there with no job, no money. You get on the elevator with Thurgood Marshall and you all have a lasting relationship. Tell us about that experience. Well, Georgia had some a couple of schools where I could have taken education, the education mm-hmm. courses well, from black, right. they were black schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was thinking about Plessy versus Ferguson of how things should be equal. 
And I felt that those schools were not, you know, I guess we were kind of elitist at Spelman. We didn't think too much of state, black state schools, you know. So anyway, I thought of Plessy versus Ferguson, and I said, we need to go where we can really get some good education courses to mm-hmm. to get our permanent teaching yeah, certificate. So we wrote to Carrie and I, we uh, wrote to Columbia for admittance, and we were uh, approved to attend uh, Columbia and get the courses in education that we wanted. So it was, how are we going to get there? So then I thought about Plessy versus Ferguson. So I didn't make an appointment to talk to the president of the University of Georgia. I decided to go to the chancellor of the mm-hmm. University mm-hmm. of Georgia. So I had this appointment, and I went there, and um, I introduced myself, and he uh, introduced himself, and I said, you know, I have been admitted to get some education courses at Columbia. I said, but I really prefer the University of Georgia. I said, but you all won't let me come to the University of Georgia. So since we are looking at equality and Plessy versus Ferguson, I have been admitted at Columbia, and that's where I would like to go because it's a very good school. And I I said, it's equal to the University of Georgia, you know, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And I said, but I said, do you know, sir, that at the University of of Georgia, classes are $25 an hour. And I said, I go up to Columbia, that's $75 an hour. He said, well, we'll take care of the difference. Mm -hmm. I said, "Uh, but, you know, we have to travel to New York. And I said, you know, we were just 60 miles from the University of Georgia in Atlanta. And I said, I could easily get there and back. He said, well, we'll give you a stipend. Uh, to to travel to New York on a train. And then I said, but you know, when I get to New York, I said, it's going to be hard to find a place to stay. And I said, you know, in Athens, I have relatives I could stay with and wouldn't have to pay anything. He said, well, find a place in New York to stay, and we'll send you, we'll give you a stipend for that. I said, well, thank you, sir. You know, and I, we were happy. Kathy, as I said, Carrie waited for me out mm-hmm. in the lobby. Right. And I said, Carrie, that's how to work the system. You know, so mm-hmm. anyway, we get, we get to New York. And when we uh, registered, I said, well, you know, George is going to send you a check. We don't have to pay you anything. He said, what? <laughs> I said, George is going to send you a check. He said, do you know that, you know, something like it's not going to be any kind of grant, you know, what they're going to do, they will reimburse you, but we got to send them the grades before they reimburse you. And I said, oh, Lord, but I think we probably, I've been wondering all these years, I think we did have a little income during the summer because I think teachers got some pay during Mm -hmm. the summer. So I don't think we were really, you know, actually really broke. So anyway... 
I was so hurt, but we thought about the money that we were going to be spending, you know, right. and just having a ball in New York. But we weren't going to get that money. And I was really upset about that. So I told Carrie one day, I said, look, Carrie, I said, I've been reading about uh, Thurgood Marshall. I said, you know, he's the one that filed for this uh, farm, this later judge to be admitted to the University of Georgia. And I said, you know, that's the problem we had. We couldn't go uh, to the University of Georgia. So um, I dressed up that day, and uh, I found out where the NACP office was. I said, I'm going to see him and see if he could get our check for us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I went downtown and got on this elevator, and there was this tall, handsome man on the elevator. And I said, sir, could you tell me where Mr. Thurgood Marshall's office is? So he said, just follow me. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. And we, we sat there and we talked a long time. And um, we um, talked about the check. And he explained to me how he could not make those people give me, a, give me the check because they have to wait to get the grades because he knew all about the system. And I said, well... What about filing a suit for me to enter the University of Georgia? Mm -hmm. He said, well, we already have a person who uh, we have filed, you know, to get into the university. So we're, we're waiting for that. And, you know, that never came about. That, that person had to finally get his law degree from somewhere else. But lately, I think I mentioned, they turned around about two or three years ago and honored him with a... Uh, honorary degree and all of that but we talked we just talked uh, about a lot of things and uh, I guess it was just like him listening to a child you know talking mm -hmm. about my experiences and what have you so I served on the board of the NACP in Atlanta mm -hmm. so since I got a chance to really meet him and had contact with him when he would come to Atlanta mm -hmm. because I think I was uh, chair of the media uh, department of the, of the NACP. I, I, I was on the board, and I know I worked with the kids and I worked with media. I had the opportunity of seeing that he got from place to place. Mm -hmm. And um, strangely, he did not like these parties. So we were able, me and my friend were able to rescue him from one mm -hmm. night. We went to my house, had a long talk. And then after that, you know, we were just kind of friends. And when I was teaching at Houston Tillotson, I read in the paper where he was coming to go visit the ranch to, to meet with Johnson. Johnson. Mm -hmm. This was when he was solicitor general. Right. And he, I wrote him and asked him, could he stop by and just make a little speech at Houston Tillerson mm -hmm. while he was in town. And he wrote me a letter, which I have, and I treasure <laughs> that he did not have time, he would not have time to speak, but he would have time to take, to spend a little time and take me out to lunch. Okay. So that's, that's what we did. And at that time, I told him about Dean Keaton and how he was not doing anything to bring blacks to the school and black students. And he said, I want you to know that Dean Keaton is a very good friend of mine. Told you stuff you didn't know about. No, I didn't know about that. Okay. He said, 
Because I thought DP was prejudice, you know, mm-hmm. really. It was some kind of thing in Arkansas, was that it? Yeah, okay. he uh, he filed, NACP filed a suit to get a black man into the law school mm-hmm. at the University of Oklahoma. Oklahoma, okay. And he said that Dean Keaton helped him considerably. And somebody told me that he was even a witness for, uh, later a witness for Thurgood uh, mm-hmm. in that suit. And he said, not only did he help me out there, but his brother, who was teaching at Harvard, right, Harvard also right. helped out. He said, so you can't say those things about uh, Dean <laughs> King. So mm-hmm. after that, I started appreciating <laughs> Dean King, you know. Speaking of UT Law, you said one of your biggest achievements and accomplishments that you, you hold in high esteem is helping UT Law get over its past and getting more minorities and African-Americans interested in attending the law school here at UT. I heard that a committee was being formed because it it tickled me because I said that they just feel that they they do, (laughs) they're entitled to something better than just me being Mm -hmm. So his name was Jim Boyle, and I cannot locate him. I plan to call the state bar to find out where he is because he may be in a law office and his name is not anywhere. He organized this committee, and of course, me being the only black there, uh, they let me be on the committee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, they weren't too happy about it, but I told them, how can you have a committee recruiting black students and not yeah. include me? So that's what we did. We decided to do just that so we interviewed students over at University of Texas and I remember one of them was uh, Carnegie Mims Mm -hmm. and I think there probably was one or two others and uh, I'll never forget our trip to Prairie View because it was on a Wednesday night and it was even raining but we had set up this with one of the government teachers at Prairie View and I felt we had to go and I remember that night that evening before we left, Dean Keaton said, well, what are y'all doing? Are y'all going to prayer meeting tonight? You know, mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. just kind of comical about that. So we went up there, and we talked to these students, and two of them did come. One was Richard Scott, that I'm very proud of. Right. And the other one, I can't think of his name right now, but he recently died. Mm-hmm. And um, Richard became the Justice of the Peace with a building named after right. him. And I had a friend who was working at uh, Jarvis College, so I called him and asked him would he help us uh, get some students, and he was able to get some of the students at Jarvis. And I don't know, the word kind of got around. I just know that we had 13 blacks coming in for that fall semester of 1968, and I feel that you know, that I played a great part in getting that started. (laughs) I understand. Any final comments, Judge Murphy? Well, the only comment I'd like to make is that I wish it was possible for hundreds of black, especially black students, to read my book, uh, which I've just uh, published. And it was published by the University of Texas Press because I want them to know that... um, you're going to have a lot of challenges in life, but you got to meet them face to face, mm-hmm. you know. You got to be strong and you got to have a lot of confidence in yourself. And you got to appreciate people and realize that, um, that um, we are all humans and that we all deserve respect. 
and that that's what we should always think about uh, is that respecting people and moving on with our lives and handling all the challenges that may come. And if we have a hard time, find the resources uh, to help us do that. But do not stop, you know. Mm. Just continue until you reach the peak that Mm. you would like to accomplish. I would be somewhat remiss if I didn't uh, ask you about the Abigail Fisher case in which you made a recommendation that the 10%, top 10% rule needed to be adjusted because a lot of students were being left out just because they were in the top 10% of their graduating yeah, that, class. That's what I wrote a op-ed on with the American statesman. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, Garcia asked me what kind of title you want, and I said, I'll leave it up to you. And he really should have had reform, but I think he had that we should get rid of it, which I did not mean. But I, the article will tell you that. Uh, it's just that I should have got my own title and not let him put it. <laughs> so it was really to, as you said, to reform the 10% rule. And at that time, President Powell was interested in at least only having to take 10%, only having to take... 70, well, having to take every, well, originally, every student who graduated in the top 10 10 could register for any state college that they would like to. It would have to to be be accepted. accepted. So he felt that the freshman class of about 7,000 was filling up with all of these whites Mm-hmm. and not with uh, minorities right. and that uh, very, very few minorities and that uh, you need to lower it to 75% of those 10 percenters. Mm-hmm. And that's what I went all out with the uh, editorial and also uh, waiting to testify. I testified before the House Committee on Education and the Senate Committee on Education. I was there like 12 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, Bill Powell's mentioned that in his introduction to the book that I've just published. But uh, I was very proud that we accomplished that. And some of those black legislators told me that I was responsible <laughs> with my <laughs> testimony, you know. Mm-hmm. So I felt very happy about that. So we did get it cut down where there would be 25% left for the college to use to admit minority students or whatever students mm-hmm. they would like if they met you know, certain uh, qualifications. And that's where this uh, Abigail decided that she should come in under that 25% and that she... Yeah, uh, I like when you wrote, you put she... In quotes, when she somebody took her her slot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, that's where that came from. You were one of the individuals that had an opportunity to express your thoughts about the O.J. Simpson case. Yes, every day I listened to that testimony, and that's why I felt that they should have had more of those excerpts from the paper in there rather than just have it all in one paragraph Mm -hmm. because I listened to it every day and in the end I felt that that verdict was correct because I felt that the state did not prove beyond reasonable doubt Mm -hmm. uh, that he was the one 
uh, that killed his wife. The Honorable Dr. Harriet M. Murphy, retired municipal court judge, civil rights activist, former college professor and department head, and author of There All the Honor Lines, a memoir. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions as to future In Black America programs, email us at inblackamerica at kut.org. Also, let us know what radio station you heard is over. Remember to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station or of the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear previous programs online at KUT.org. Until we have the opportunity again for technical producer David Alvarez, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us again next week. CD copies of this program are available and may be purchased by writing In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. That's In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. This has been a production of KUT Radio.